Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. This is episode 25, which feels like a milestone of sorts. And as such, I have a particularly powerful story today. I've been inspired by the women who share their stories with me because these stories showcase strength and resilience that often the women themselves didn't know they had. Today's guest is an amazing example of this, and this episode could be titled Overcoming. My guest overcame the challenges of a premature birth and a fourth degree tear and a misdiagnosis and a fistula and a stoma. Having had so many elements of her life overturned by her experience of birth, she was reborn in a way as a complete badass, tackling every physical thing that previously induced fear in her. She's challenging all the ideas that had created limits on her life and in the process, raising awareness and money for others who've experienced birth trauma and who are living with a stoma. I'm also lucky to include the medical insights of a fantastic OB who happens to be the co-founder of an organization called Beyond Fistula, helping women in Kenya who are working to overcome their own challenges with obstetric fistula. Let's get to this inspiring story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Hi, yes, sure. So my name is Jill Castle and I'm from Northern England on the border with Scotland. Nice, lovely. And Jill, how many kids do you have? I have one. I have Sam, who a little boy who's nine and a half. Oh wow! Oh my god, yeah. that's a fun age. Yeah, yeah. It's um just uh striking out, getting his independent, or wanting more independence. So yeah. So Jill, before you had kids, I'm imagining that you had some ideas about what you thought pregnancy would be like. What did you imagine it would be like? Oh, a piece of cake. I was fit and healthy. I'm not an ill person, so I don't do illness. I don't get ill, don't really get colds, never had chest infection. You know, there was just, yeah, well, I was going to get pregnant and I was going to have a baby and that would be it really, pretty much. Okay, well, it's a good way to go into it, I guess, as good as any. And did you get pregnant easily? Yeah, I did actually. Didn't take long at all. Basically, I think we tried for a couple of months. My husband works away. So he then went away and came back and we got pregnant literally the day he came back. Oh, wow. Well done. Yeah. 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 I mean, the reason I know this is it was some sort of freak chance because my period was due three days later and it never came. The child is definitely his. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find out with like a home kit? Yeah, we just did a just from the supermarket. Yeah. And yeah, did the whole pee on the stick thing. And there we are, the, the two lines. I can't even remember now if it's a line or a cross or whatever. But anyway, yeah. I was pregnant. And yeah, and I remember actually my husband not being that sort of, I mean, he didn't like jump up and down. He's not a jumping up and down kind of person anyway. Yeah. But he um, he was just like, all right, well, yeah. <laughs> I knew you would be. And I was just like. Taking it in stride, okay. And, and I was like, well, yeah, but. It's still quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. confirmed, you know. I'm assuming because you're in England, you plan to go with a midwife? Yeah, well, in in England, yeah. Well, yeah, we have midwives, but you, you don't, well, you're meant to have a dedicated midwife throughout your pregnancy, but not necessarily. They're, they're not the ones that are at the birth. But yeah, it was just going to be midwife. I was going to be an uncomplicated pregnancy so I wasn't high risk or anything like that so there was nothing really you know nothing to cause alarm to be honest yeah. for, for my pregnancy so yeah that was just the plan just to be with a midwife and just give birth in the in the hospital in the city where I lived. Was the pregnancy easy did you have you know morning sickness or, or no I didn't you... have any morning sickness 
at all, none nice. whatsoever. The only thing I did have, which I would actually rather have had morning sickness, is I had a couple of bleeds, which obviously is really, really stressful. So I had a couple of early scans, but they were always absolutely fine. But yeah, I mean, I didn't get heartburn. I didn't get stretch marks. Mind you, that's probably because I, I gave birth six weeks early. So I missed out on that final um, expansion yeah. of the stomach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was really, really fortunate. I was I was absolutely fine. I, I continued walking. I continued working as well. It was no problem. Really. And then, so you said you delivered early. So, so what happened there? So what happened was I was a police officer at the time and I... We were working seven days on and then four days off. I just finished my seven day set and I was woken up the following morning. At se- and it was exactly seven o'clock in the morning because I remember looking at the clock. Woken up at seven o'clock in the morning with a really sharp pain, uh, which I now know uh, was a contraction. And this was six weeks before my due date. So I just had this really sharp pain, then it stopped. And I went to the toilet and there was like just a little bit of pink on my underwear. And I thought, well, that, well, that's a bit weird. But, you know, I wasn't in any any discomfort. Like the pain had just disappeared. Yeah. So I left it for another hour and a half and then I had another contraction. But again, it, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's just like a quick kick in the stomach, isn't it? So I just thought, oh, oh, well, that was strange. So I rang the early pregnancy unit at the local hospital and explained what had happened and they said all right you've had a show which is uh, what the pink discharge was in my underwear show is part of the mucus plug blocking the cervix that starts to come away when labor is starting its liberation from your vagina means that the cervix is starting to open it might contain a little blood which is why it's pink and yeah you better just come along and get checked out but you know we're not worried just just come along and i told my husband who said Oh, but I'm about to go and uh, get my hair cut. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> We're going to the hospital. <laughs> it was like there was a pause as we both looked at each other. And then he was like, right, OK, we're going to go to the hospital. <laughs> so, yeah, we took all the hospital bags and off we went. And um, I was put under observation. And they said, oh, you know, we think you might be having contractions. But they were really, really far apart, you know, an hour and a half apart. And they said, you know, we're just going to monitor you. We'll see what happens if you progress. But what it might be is false labour. Yeah. So they said this might all of a sudden just completely stop and then you'll go home. Yeah. So I sort of had this in my head that this was all just fake. It was all false. It wasn't going to go anywhere. False labour or Braxton Hicks contractions can be described as a tightening in the abdomen that comes and goes. The contractions don't get close together. They don't increase in how long they last or how often they occur. And they're not regular. And they don't get stronger over time. I was fine, really. I was doing my knitting. I don't know why I wasn't bothered. I just wasn't, I wasn't concerned, to be honest. Um, I have to say I'm impressed that you brought your husband along. I would definitely have dismissed my husband to try to make it so. Number one, I don't like driving into the city anyway. And the parking at that particular hospital was an absolute nightmare. So, and it was sheer good luck and good fortune that he was there. Yeah, Because he works away and he wasn't actually due to be back and think the week before the baby was due. So he just happened to have come home and he was due to leave again a couple of days later. So, I mean, if this had happened a week later, he would have been on a boat in the middle of the North Sea, unable to come back. So that was one of the lucky things. Not many lucky things, but that was one of them. (laughs) So you're at the hospital and how long are you there and they're monitoring and what's going on? 
So we got there about nine o'clock in the morning. I lost track of time, really. All, all I know is that by, say, two o'clock in the afternoon, I was in established labour. And obviously the contractions have been getting closer and closer together. And uh, the, be, because I was um, in early labour, they needed to monitor the baby. So they had lots and lots of wires and things all strapped to my stomach. And I couldn't get off the bed. I couldn't walk around. I couldn't make myself comfortable at all. And when I was really in full swing of labour, I remember saying to the midwife, oh, is this, oh, is this actually labour? Am, am I having a baby today? And she said, oh, yeah, you're very much of it. You're going to have a baby really quite soon. And I was like, oh, I just couldn't, I couldn't quite get my head around what she was saying. So, uh, so, so yeah, that's when I sort of realised mid-afternoon that I was on my way to have a baby. That is kind of shocking, especially given the way they treated you when you came. Well, well, yeah, and I, you know, I just, I mean, they did sort of laugh in the delivery, delivery suite and my husband did as well, because to them, it was obviously really, really clear that I was in full it. But I just kept thinking, oh, well, this can stop. And I did sort of say, oh, well, thank God for that, because I'm not coming back in six weeks time and doing this all over again. I was yeah. like, I better be a baby at the end of all this. So by about four o'clock in the afternoon, that's when, yeah, I was in, I was in the grip of it all. But I, I'd in the UK, it's probably similar in the, in America, but in the UK we have um, the opportunity to write a birth plan. Yeah, which is nonsense half the time, isn't it? Because you never it never gets followed. But yeah, for one reason or other, and I'd forgotten that I'd written in my birth plan that I didn't want to have any pain relief until I asked for it. Yeah, because I thought, well, I'm going to be the best judge of when I need pain relief. I don't want people giving it to me too early. I want to carry on for as long as possible because then I'll get the maximum benefit from the pain relief but I'd forgotten I'd said that so then I was thinking well I don't want to ask for pain relief because they're not giving me any so they mustn't think that I'm bad enough yet to be given pain <laughs> so I was laboring away with absolutely no, no gas and air with absolutely nothing until eventually I said you know um can, can, I, can I get some pain relief yet and they were like oh we've been waiting for you to ask it's on your birth notes not to you oh, I was like oh how stupid was I? anyway they said well you can try gas and air but we don't think you know I think you're a bit far gone for that and they were right yeah <laughs> I took a bit of gas and air and I was like well swore quite a lot um basically said this is rubbish um and, and, but then that's when it all started to get a bit complicated because Obviously, you will know this, but when a baby's born, it ha actually has to help itself out with a birthing canal at the end. Yeah. But because Sam was only £4.7 and he was tiny, he he got tired. He was exhausted and he was back to back as well. So his heart rate dropped and then all hell broke loose. So there, I just remember all of a sudden there was just loads and loads of people there. And they said, right, we're going to have to get you into theatre give you an epidural and get this baby out they you know they said there's no time to do a c-section or anything like that we're just gonna have to get the baby out but they, they didn't really say that quite as explicitly as that um I, I just remember lots and lots of people and just the conversation of right we're going to theater and you know we're going to get the baby out that's super interesting to me that they said like this is an emergency there's no time for a c-section because i would imagine that vaginal delivery would take longer so I brought this question to a doctor. Today, I'm lucky enough to talk to Dr. Metatiahu, who's an amazing OB and the co-founder and executive director of Beyond Fistula, an organization in Kenya that helps women who have encountered fistulas in childbirth. 
Her organization helps women heal and rebuild their lives, working out social and economic issues that these injuries can create. And she actually introduced me to Jill, an introduction I'm entirely grateful for. Hi, Dr. Metadiahu. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me again. I love speaking with you and I love everything that you're doing to inspire other women. So thank you. So one question I had is Jill talks about how they say, we're going to have to get this baby out and there's no time for a C-section. Isn't C-section the fastest way to get the baby out? I mean, it's either C-section or vacuum or some people will still do forceps. If, if the head is crowning and you can, and it's right there and you can just sort of put a vacuum on the head and gently pull or put forceps on and gently pull and get the head out within a minute or two, then you would do that. If the baby's head is a little bit higher up and there's no way to immediately encourage delivery, then C-section. Well, you would have thought, you know, but they, I mean, considering that I went into theater and it took three attempts for me to be given the epidural. Yeah. Because they couldn't get it in my spine. And I do remember being absolutely petrified at that point because, of course, they say, you know, this is a really sharp needle. You have to keep as still as possible because it's going into your spine. And I mean, there I am sitting on the bed holding a, a pillow to try and keep, but having contractions and yeah. trying to keep really, really, I mean, so, I mean, it took them three attempts and then they finally got it in. And, and as soon as they got the aperture in, I do remember actually lying back and sort of going, oh, right. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, nice to meet you. Sorry, I'm not normally that awful. If I've said anything horrible, I'm really sorry. And and I looked at my husband and I said, oh, have you been here all the time? And he said he was absolutely gutted because he was starving. And he said, you mean I could actually have left you at some point? <laughs> got him, got something to eat. But so they get it in and then do you not have a long period of pushing or are you already ready to push or how does that all work? Oh, to be honest, I don't remember any pushing at all. I, I don't remember anyone saying anything about pushing to me. I, I remember literally just lying back and saying, hi, everyone. And then they fiddled about and then they brought out this baby. Oh, wow. Literally, literally, you know, and I remember they sort of produced this white mucusy covered well baby yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally in front of my face and I was a bit like oh and then he was whisked away straight away to well he, they they put him on the side and they worked on him it, we heard him crying um so I wasn't I wasn't that concerned and they had said you know we've, we've given you the steroid injection because the lungs are the last thing to develop in a baby so we've given yeah. you that to for his lungs but he was grunting which is fairly common with newborn premature babies so anyway, he was taken off to special care and that's when I was stitched up. And really that's when the ca catastrophe happened. They take the baby and he's off. You, you said he's like four pounds, seven ounces, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty decent size for yeah. 34 yeah. weeks, right? So that's nice. Yeah. 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 The person stitching you up is a, an OB. Yes. She was a consultant. And she's the one who told you the situation. Yeah, so so they said you've you've sustained a tear, and so while you've obviously the epidural is still working, we will she's going to repair you. So you just lie there, and she's going to repair you, and you know don't worry about it. You'll then go back on the ward and be reunited with your baby. But because I couldn't feel anything because yeah. I'd had the epidural, I really, you know, I had nothing to worry about. I mean, I. I was kind of aware that women could tear giving birth, but I didn't really know anything about I didn't I didn't really understand, to be honest, the significance of having a tear. 
yeah. depending on the, the, the extremity of the tear, of course. How common is tearing? Tearing is pretty common. We grade the tears by numbers. So a first degree tear would be a really superficial, tiny tear in like the vaginal mucosa or some of the tissue around the entrance of the vagina. A second degree tear is probably the most common and it's sort of through the vaginal mucosa and, and through some of the muscle. And a third degree tear, and they call it a partial or a full third degree tear, is a tear that goes through the vaginal tissue and into the sphincter around, that's the rectal sphincter. So it's a tear that's either a partial sphincter tear or a complete sphincter tear is a third degree. So a partial third degree or a full third degree. And then a fourth degree tear is a tear that goes, again, through the vaginal mucosa, vaginal muscle, through the rectal sphincter, and in addition, through the rectal mucosa. So it's a tear that goes right through and into the rectum. So that's a fourth degree tear. Those um, are much less common. To put some numbers to this discussion, according to the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in England, up to nine in every 10 first-time mothers who have a vaginal birth will experience some sort of tear, graze, or episiotomy. For third and fourth degree tears, the numbers are a little different. They say six out of 100 or 6% of first-time mothers experience this. Again, I mean, I just wasn't worried because I couldn't feel anything. So as far as I concerned, I was just like, well, this is normal. Right. I've had a baby, I've torn, she's going to stitch me up and I'm going to go back on the ward and meet my baby and it'll all be fine. It, it sounds like she didn't present it as something to be worried about. Well, no, that's because she didn't think it was at the time, which we found out in the later investigation that she she completely misdiagnosed me. So so as far as you know, she stitches you up and you go back to the ward and... Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So she stitched me up and, and they said, right, you're going to go back on the ward and all you need to do is you just need to keep uh, the wound clean so even though it'll be painful, you must, you know, have a shower, keep it clean and dry. Don't avoid having a bath or a shower or anything like that. And I thought, well, that's absolutely fine. That's, you know, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I can do that. No problem at all. So once the epidural wore off and we finally met our baby at two o'clock in the morning, he was born at 20 past eight at night, finally met him on the ward at two o'clock in the morning. And that was very surreal because the ward was really dark and we were terribly British about the whole thing. So we didn't want to make any noise. We didn't want to disturb anybody. So we didn't even want to turn on the light. So we, I mean, this is ridiculous when I think about it. So we turned on our mobile phone cameras, our other lights, so we could actually look at our child for the first time. So, I mean, a lot of all, all of that, you know, obviously affected the bond that I had because... The very first time I saw him, he was thrust in my face for literally two seconds. Then he yeah. was away. Then yeah. when we met him, we weren't allowed to... Well, we should have done, really. When I think about it, we sod the other people on the ward. <laughs> we should yeah, have yeah, just yeah. put the light on, yeah. but we didn't. And I think, you know, that that impacted as well. The, the emotion you felt able to, to feel, really. Yeah. yeah. Why did they have him for so long? What were they doing for all those hours? They didn't have the staff to discharge him from special care. Okay. So there wasn't actually any need for him to be in there because after he'd been in there for about two hours or something, they said, right, yeah, he's absolutely fine. He's ready to come onto the ward. But he needed to, I presume he must have needed to be signed off by a consultant or, or the registrar or somebody must have okay. needed to sign him off the ward and they didn't have that person. So that's why we had to wait so long, not because they were doing anything significant. Um, okay, good. So he's totally fine. 
Oh, he was um, absolutely fine. Yep. But this process messes with your ability to bond and yeah. Yeah. I am totally sympathetic to the impulse to be quiet for other people. It's it's hard to have such a an emotional experience in a packed house. Yeah, yeah. And and, and in a dark house when you know yeah. people are sleeping and you yeah. just think, God, you know, I don't want to and I'm sure, you know, when I look back, I think, God, nobody would have cared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Parents expressing joy over seeing their baby, you know, yeah. but you just sort of, yeah, we'd never had a baby. So we were just still in the motions of not having a baby, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we were on the ward and it was really shocking, actually, because my husband was a, a Royal Marine. And when we were on the ward, we were looking at all these women who were literally staggering about, holding onto walls, grimacing with pain, barely able to walk, some of them. And... Chris, my husband, looked at me and he said, you know, Jill, this reminds me of a, um, a field hospital. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and I said, oh, it really does. I said, I never envisaged a birthing ward looking like this. Normally when you see women with babies, they're sitting at home having a cup of tea. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. they're going along yeah. the street with a pram or buggy or pushchair. You don't see them when they've literally just had a baby. But that, in a way, made me feel a bit better. Because I thought, yeah. oh, right, well, they're in just as much pain as me. So that, that kind of normalized it a bit. Yeah. But at the same time, couldn't sit properly. I could barely walk. It was really painful. But the, the kind of person I am, I just thought, right, well, I, I'm not going to get beaten by this. You know, all I've done is have a baby. Loads of people have babies. Loads of people have tears. So I'm not going to make any sort of complaint and fuss. I'm just going to get on with it. So that's what I tried to do but as the days progressed the pain just got worse and worse and worse and the very next day after having the baby I noticed like a brownie discharge on my underwear and I said to the midwife oh I've got like brownie sort of discharge on my underwear not much but there's obviously something and she said oh no that's fine no that's fine that's just sort of the tissues all fixing together that's just a bit of mucus and you know it's nothing to worry about yeah so I was like, oh, right, okay. And then I thought, well, I know when I've like fallen over in the playground and scraped my knee, you do get a jelly mucusy type stuff on your knee when it's healing. So I just thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's what it's from. Jill talked about brownie discharge on her underwear. Should that have been a red flag? I think that if someone just said, I have some brown stain, you know, when blood is exposed to air and is oxidized and dries, like it turns brown. And so if there's just a little bit of brown staining, um, a, you know, I'm guessing that a midwife might think, oh, it's just some old blood that's sort of oxidized and dried on your underwear. The pain just started to get worse and worse and worse. And after about two days, I started getting poo in my pants. Uh-huh. And, and I thought, well, that is not normal. But I wasn't yeah. really, because there wasn't very much. I couldn't really work out where it was coming from because it didn't really seem to be coming from the normal area yeah and then it was getting to the point that every time I went to the toilet I was pulling the emergency buzzer because I was in so much pain I, I was frightened to go to the toilet yeah I had to I had to think oh my god I'm gonna go to the toilet it's gonna be horrific and 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 then I clearly remember after three days I was in so much pain and so much distress I, I had a shower and I remember, I mean, this is, you know, so mortifying when you think about it, but it's just what you do when you're yeah. a mum, isn't it? And, and and so I was in the shower 
and I could not work out where this poo was coming from. And basically, I couldn't work out what was part of my body and what wasn't. And a midwife came past, and I was completely naked in the shower, and I bent over, showed her my backside, and said, right, is my bottom in the right place? I said, I can't, I can't, I can't work out what's happening. I said, there's poo coming out all over the place, and I'm just, I, I can't work out where my bottom is. And, and she just looked at me like I was completely insane and said, that's absolutely fine. It's in the normal. You're fine. Just finish your shower and go back to your bed and, you know, sort yourself out. Okay, wait, I'm going to stop you right there. Now, looking back, do we think she should have known that something was off? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. I, I and I remember being hysterical in the shower, you know, and, yeah. and, and I clearly remember saying, I don't know where my bottom is. I, I don't understand what's happening to my body. Like, where is it all coming from? Can you show me where it is? Yeah, because you, mean, you don't feel it like a normal bowel movement. No, no. Yeah. And I always remember like that, that she just was sort of like, oh, no, you're absolutely fine. You know, I mean, she didn't examine me. Obviously, she didn't come close to me. She obviously just glanced and said, oh, no, you're absolutely fine. Basically, making out that I was completely mad. And I actually thought I was mad because I knew that there was something seriously wrong but I couldn't, I couldn't get anybody to understand what I was saying. So I have to tell you as an objective third party that I find this so frustrating to hear. I'm oh, it gets so, better. <laughs> like desperately frustrated on your behalf that you're not being taken seriously. And then Jill tells the story about the poo coming out in the shower and she doesn't know what's going on with her body. Is this a red flag? If anyone were to say to me or I'm sure one of my colleagues, like, I feel like there's poo coming down my leg in the shower. I think we would say, well, we need to examine you. Like, why would that be coming out? Best case scenario, I would think, well, maybe you have diarrhea and you're just, yeah. you know, things are in pain down there and your rectal sphincter is relaxed. But even with the benefit of the doubt, I, I would wonder, like, why would you have stool running down your leg? That is not a complaint that is typically heard at all. So, so I think that that would make me immediately worry and say, wow, I really need to investigate. Like, why is there a stool coming down your leg? Like, that is not normal. So then I went back to my bed, staggered back to the bed. And by this point, you could, I could smell poo. And I remember I was visited by a friend who'd come to see the, the, me and the baby. And she'd said, oh, it smells of poo in here. And, and I was like, oh, it's the baby. And then yeah. I was thinking, well, that's not like, that's not normal. She can smell something. Yeah. So I said to the midwife it was, on the evening shift, I said, I've got poo in my pants. And she was like, really? And I said, yes. And I said, I definitely have. And I said, I don't know what's going on because I didn't have this a couple of days ago. So anyway, she looked and she was like, oh, well, I can't see anything. And, and I said, but I'm in so much pain. I said, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And she said what everyone had said to me repeatedly whenever I'd said how pain, how much pain I was in. They just said, oh, well, the heat that you can feel around your body, around that area, that is just the tissues knitting together. That, and they, they are producing heat when they're knitting back together. And I was sort of thinking, well, well, OK, that makes sense. But I've had cuts in the past and they haven't got this hot. I mean, I knew it was a big wound, but all the same it, you know it just didn't make any sense but yeah. that's what everyone just kept saying to me 
So anyway, I told this to the midwife about the poo in my pants and she looked at me and she said, no, I can't see anything. So the next morning, there was a change of midwives. And the, the next midwife came on and she said, oh, you know, how are you? And I said, oh, well, I'm absolutely fantastic, apart from the fact that I'm pooing pants. But, you know, apart from that, I'm great. And she was like, oh, oh, what are you talking about? And I said, has this not been mentioned on handover? Is this not on my notes? She's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, right, last night I told the midwife that I, I poo in my pants, that my friend had smelled poo and she'd come in the room. Um, that's the situation. And she said, oh, so she had a look and again said, no, it looks like it's healing fine. Yeah, no, you're okay. So again, I was thinking, well, this is just like completely mad. You know, I'd like two people examine me now and say that there's not a problem and everything's healing. Yet I know I'm pooing my pants. Two midwives check her on successive days and say she's healing. Given that we know ex post there is a problem, why does it look like there isn't a problem? So you have to do a really good exam to see what's happening underneath your repair. Okay. And so if you're just looking into the vagina and you see your suture line that the vaginal mucosa is sort of closed up on top, you're not able to look at what's underneath that. And so it's the layer underneath that's not closed. And so unless you do a rectal exam and put your finger into the rectum and see, do I feel an opening? Do I feel a defect or is it completely closed off and smooth? If you don't do a rectal exam, you don't know what's happening underneath. You have no idea. So, I mean, it looks nice on top. It's like if you had a bullet wound in your abdomen and I just put a shirt over it and you're like, yeah, that shirt looks great. Yeah. You know, so like the okay. top layer looks great. Everything's closed off and smooth and, and looking fine. But underneath I'm hemorrhaging. So yeah. it's sort of like it's the deep layers that have to be evaluated. And if you're just looking and you're like, yeah, everything looks good on top. But it's not telling you the whole story. Later that day, I was trying to walk along the corridor. But by this point, I, I couldn't really walk. And essentially, I collapsed in the corridor and I was found by a male midwife. And, and he said, you know, are you all right? And I said, no. I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I said, I, I literally, I can't do this. And, and I remember, like, my voice was really weak. <laughs> and yeah. I was just saying, I, I can't, I can't, I just can't. I can't do this. It's so painful. I just can't cope anymore. And do you know what he said to me? He said, oh, maybe it's your perception of the pain. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I thought, you having a laugh like oh so I'm a wimp yeah <laughs> part of me died at that point because I just thought right oh my god I you know I've literally just collapsed in the corridor I've said to this man that I cannot cope and he said to me maybe it's your perception of the pain and then he said oh well would you like me to examine you and I was like no I'm fine thank you <laughs> I don't want you coming anywhere near me because no kidding oh my god you, you know and then I just thought, right, well, I'm, I am just going to go back to my bed and I'm going to die because no one's taking any notice of me. And I know something's seriously wrong. And, well, you can probably guess, you know, I'm quite articulate. I'm more than capable of sticking up for myself. I was a police officer, for heaven's sake. Yeah. But I, I was in so much pain and I was so weak. I, I wasn't able to to speak up for myself. But I, could, I didn't have the energy to fight with people to be seen. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the tricky thing that you learn in medical context that you have to be your own advocate, but it's yeah. wildly unfair to make a woman who's just given birth be her own advocate. 
Yeah. You know, you're filled with hormones. You've just basically run a marathon by giving birth. These two things don't go together. Exactly. Exactly. And and my body was fighting too much to to give me the energy to then fight for for support and yeah. and um help. So I went back to my bed, but obviously this midwife must have thought, oh, actually, we better go and see what's going on. So another female midwife came and said, Oh, you know, I hear you've <laughs> collapsed. Can I examine you? I said right yes you can you can but I'm sure like everybody else you'll say there's nothing wrong with me this is after now five days of having a baby and she tried to examine me and I remember she basically put a hand toward where the, the tear was and then she immediately brought a hand back and she said wow I couldn't even get near to your t- I could feel the heat coming off you I was basically hovering over where the tear and she said and you you jumped back on the bed yeah and I was like well yeah <laughs> I'm in an awful lot of pain. So she said, right, we need to get you examined by the consultants. A consultant gynecologist came down to examine me and they actually had to give me gas and air because they couldn't get anywhere near me. And the consultant didn't really look for that long, to be honest. And she said, right, you've got a fourth degree tear, which has been missed. And she said, you've got an enormous abscess around the tear. She said, that's now burst. And you've also got a rectovaginal fistula, which is where you have a hole between the lining of the rectum and the vagina. And you've got poo coming out of your vagina. And and, and I remember actually being really relieved because I was like, right, you know, thank God for that. Like there, there actually is something seriously wrong with me. Yeah. So she said, right, well, I'll have to get the colorectal surgeon to come down and see what he thinks. But she said, I think the only way out of this is to, give you a stoma so that we can divert the feces away from this area give a chance for everything to heal then we can repair you and then reverse the stoma and and, and, you know get on with your life what's a stoma a stoma is an opening on the abdomen that can be connected to either your digestive or urinary system to allow waste to be diverted out of your body if it can't move through your rectum bowel movements leave your body through the stoma and are collected in a pouch that you empty out it can be temporary or permanent And there are a number of different reasons to get a stoma, like Crohn's disease or bowel cancer or for obstetric reasons. I was just relieved. To be honest, if they'd said to me, we're going to chop off both your legs, I would have said, I don't care. (laughs) As long as it takes away the pain, do do what the hell you like. So they went off and I burst into floods of tears, obviously, and was ushered off into a. I finally got my own private room. I do remember joking and saying, gosh, what you have to do to get a private (laughs) private room in this. (laughs) So, yeah, so then that was the next the next stage really but I mean we're only talking about less than a week after having a baby the fistula tract was actually septic and that was septic for a year and how on earth I didn't get sepsis yeah during those five I you know I well I think I must have been pretty close because I I mean I I just remember just being so weak and unable to function when they examined you and finally sort of validated everything that you had been describing for days did you understand exactly what they were saying like what the process was and what they were going to do well by sheer good fortune one of my friends who I'd met in the city that I was living in had had a stoma in the last year but she'd had a different one she'd had an ileostomy which is the small intestine and I was going to get a colostomy Mm -hmm. So I was like, right, I do actually have a vague idea of what this kind of entails because I remember talking to her about her bags and all this sort of thing. 
So I did have like a little bit of an idea, but at the same time, it was just too much information, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew that a fourth degree tear was bad. I knew the fourth degree tear was like the worst tear that you could possibly get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I wasn't particularly overjoyed about getting a stoma, but, you know, I, I just thought, you know, it's only for 12 weeks. Yeah. Only for 12 weeks. So this is fine. 12 weeks. Yeah. You can do 12 weeks and then you'll get on with your life. Um, yeah and it sounds like a fix right so yeah I was just like oh well you know that's fine and I thought well you know my friend she had a stoma and yeah she didn't have a great time with it but I thought but it doesn't matter because it's only 12 weeks so yeah and I was just relieved I was just so relieved because I was just like right we have a solution to my problem and I'm going to get fixed and I'm going to get better and I'm not going to have this infection and yeah people are actually going to start taking me seriously yeah and they did (laughs) So. And so this whole time, is the baby with you or how, how's all that going? Are you breastfeeding? Well, I tried to breastfeed, but obviously because it was premature and like obviously my body just was too busy. Yeah. I didn't have any milk supply. Yeah. And really, I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK, they're pretty obsessed with breastfeeding, Yeah, which I can un- understand why. I know that it is best for the baby. I understand this. But... And because I wasn't very well, I didn't have any sort of energy to, to to argue with them and say that I wanted to do it in any different way. So, they, I mean, and they were trying their best to give me the best chance to be able to breastfeed. But, you know, I mean, I was expressing and I was breastfeeding and I was like struggling to survive. Yeah. And I didn't have any milk whatsoever. So, so yeah, I, I, at that point, I was exclusively breastfeeding. But after a week... Well, it was eight days, eight days after I had the baby, we were were transferred to a different hospital so that I could have the surgery. And of course, after I had the surgery, you know, my body was obviously just like, no, yeah, there is no milk. (laughs) There is no milk left. Like we have nothing to give this baby. And it it was after that that I said, right, this is it. Like I am not breastfeeding anymore. My baby is hungry. I'm exhausted. Just put him on a bottle. And I, I remember the poor little soul, the first time he had a bottle, he just, he was just so, hung, you know, glugging yeah. it down. <laughs> and finally really full for the first time, the poor little thing. And, and I just thought, right, yeah, and somebody else can do it. Yeah, it was totally. <laughs> totally. In the in the U.S., there is a press now to say fed is best yeah. as opposed to breastfeeding is best because there are all kinds of things that can make breastfeeding just too challenging. And when you go to the other hospital, your baby can come with you. Yeah, well, my poor husband. So I had to go in the ambulance. Yeah. But my son couldn't go in the ambulance. And and bear in mind, my baby was tube fed. So my husband had to take this tiny, tiny little baby who was being tube fed in the car for the very first time across the city to this hospital neither of us had ever been to. Yeah. And you know what it's like the first time you, you have your baby in the car. Yeah, one of you is always look at is it breathing? Oh, we crushed the chest. Like yes, yeah, oh yeah. man, he he didn't have anyone there, and he didn't really yeah. know where he was going, and he was following the ambulance, and yeah, he said, oh, it was just so stressful yeah. trying to get across the city with this time, and of course Sam was tiny as well. I mean, I, yeah. I know four pound seven isn't that small, but it was a small baby. Small for the car. Ours too. When we put her in the car seat, we were like, oh, it doesn't fit at all. She, my baby, was born early too, and if it makes you feel any better. As soon as my husband dropped us off on like the lawn in front of our apartment, he crashed the car. <laughs> he, driving it back to the garage, he crashed it. Like it's, oh, it's stressful. 
Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So I had my surgery, but I had to then go on the adult ward because they uh-huh. said, you know, the midwives can't cope with someone who's just had a stoma. And they said the adult colorectal ward can't cope with a premature baby that's being tube fed. So he had to actually go into special care just so that there was somebody with him all the time, which was, you know, that was an eye opener and put things into perspective for us because at the end of the day, we had a lovely, healthy little boy. And yeah, I, I, you know, I was in my wheelchair being wheeled across to see him. And we felt guilty actually that he was in special care because he was around babies who needed to be in special care. Yeah, that was, you know, it helps to have a dose of, perspective sometimes of things. Yeah. Although I'm glad he had that opportunity because that's probably the only circumstance where you and your husband feel that he's totally cared for by people who know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that took that pressure totally off, yeah. you know, that we didn't have to worry about him. So I was on a separate ward for two or three days, I think, and filled with old people. I was the youngest person there. And I remember yeah. the women on the ward sort of saying, oh, you know, well, it's word just got round that I literally just had a baby. And they were like, oh, you've had to leave your baby at like eight days old and you know this is horrific but it's a sign of how ill I was because I didn't really care yeah (laughs) yeah. like you know I'm just I kind of I can't be upset about that because I'm just now trying to deal with this stupid bag that's on me and leaking all over the place and and yeah I couldn't bend over I couldn't do anything and I still obviously had all my my tear my abscess injuries yeah. And my so, you know, it's just a, a complete mess, basically, everywhere. That sounds super challenging. And I bet you were on uh, high dose antibiotics for the abscess. And yeah, so essentially, because of the fistula tract was septic, and it wasn't fixed for a year. I had basically a year on metronidazole, which is a really strong, it's a really strong antibiotic. Yeah, um, I was I was basically on that about well, I was on that pretty much every month for a year because it just kept flaring up and getting worse and then it needed drained as an emergency in hospital and wow yeah so tell me what happens when you pass the 12 week mark when you're supposed to be going in for the reversal of the bag well we didn't know it was way before that we realized that it wasn't going to happen really because the hospital wrote to me after I'd been home for a month and up until that point I kind of just thought you know oh I've just been unlucky this is just what happens sometimes when you give birth. Yeah. But the hospital wrote to me and said, it is not normal what happened to you. We're launching an investigation. And I was like, oh, oh, right. So hang on. What, what, what do you mean? Like, do you obviously know something's up here? Yeah. And I was invited to meet the consultant who delivered the baby. And she was profusely apologetic. Uh, and I mean, I've later found out she wasn't entirely truthful at that meeting. And I stand by what I said to her. I said, you know, I'm not bitter about the whole thing. You're a human being at the end of the day and you've made a mistake. And yes, it has had a catastrophic consequence for me. But if you hadn't got my baby out when you did, he would have died. Yes, maybe I should have had a C-section. But I just, I don't know. It just didn't feel right to me to be too, Yeah. I, I don't know, angry about it. And I've never genuinely, genuinely never been bitter. I just think it's a pointless emotion to have. It wasn't going to get me anywhere at all. So I just, yeah, I I just kind of accepted that she'd made a mistake and it had happened. But I didn't realise at that point 
exactly what mistake she had made <laughs> until yeah. I got the results of the investigation. That seems like a, a generous response that is also life lengthening for you because it's a lot of work to carry around anger for something that happened. That was a mistake. Oh, exactly. And, you know, there's certain members of my family that are extremely bitter about things that have happened in their past life. And I've seen how that can destroy you. Yeah. And how pointless it is. And, yeah. and I just think, you know, I just thought I'm not I'm not going to go there. It's it's yeah. it's well, it's it doesn't it wasn't going to make me any better. Yeah. So I mean, and some people say, oh, I hope she was sacked. And I said, why would you want her to be sacked? It's like I would feel awful. I said that yeah. wouldn't make me feel any better. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, so I then got the results of the investigation. And the investigation found the consultant had initially diagnosed a second degree tear and she'd stitched me up with this in mind. And then she thought, no, hang on a minute. I actually think I've got a third degree tear here. So she took all the stitches down and stitched me back up again. And she thought I was fixed. So she'd actually missed the fact that I had a fourth degree tear and the fact that I had a rectovaginal fistula. Jill says the consultants confused what kind of tear she had. Would it be obvious what kind of tear, or how does that work? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say would it be obvious, because like the, the tissue is usually just shredded and bloody and raw, and it's really hard to see clearly what's happening down there. And it, and it takes it takes a lot of experience to always be right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you can see that the sphincter is torn and you, you know, I mean, you just, you just have to be really thorough and do a rectal exam and really check to make sure that things are intact because it's not so obvious. It's not just in your face. Like you have to be a detective to like look and evaluate and really see what's going on underneath to be sure that you're getting the whole story. Fourth degree tears are not that common. You know, third degree tears are definitely more common, but even that is not as common. And, you know, you get a third degree tear and you're like, oh, is it really a full third degree or is it just partial? Oh, no, it can't be full. No, I can't have done that much damage. You know, just like I, sometimes I think we talk ourselves out of, maybe how how severe something is you know and then once you realize like okay it's a third degree tear let me fix it that's totally interesting to hear because i think as a patient you think everything is over once the baby is out right you think the birth is over like there's nothing else to happen it's by no means over no by no means over and and you know all repairs are not the same and and all of us do not do the same quality of repair. So I just, it just makes me sad. It just makes me sad that it wasn't fully evaluated. It was missed and it wasn't repaired. So there was a little bit of debate about whether the fistula was caused by the abscess bursting. I weren't really sure when, when that was caused, to be honest, or it could have been from the forceps or I'm just not sure. And it was brought up that, you know, when she wasn't entirely sure what she was dealing with, she should have called for the colorectal team to come down advice but she didn't she just carried on and so as a result because she'd used all of this tissue twice to create yeah. like two lots of stitches it was really friable yeah and it left no viable tissue to do a repair so she'd essentially left me irreparable but also on top of that 
my sphincter was so badly damaged externally and internally, which obviously is, is what a fourth degree tear is, but the damage was so profound, I couldn't be repaired anyway. <laughs> but she, she, she'd made it impo- like literally impossible. And it was all because she didn't, well, she missed it. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, to cut a long story short, I sued the NHS and I won in two years, which is unheard of. Normally it takes six or seven years. Oh, wow. But it was pretty, it was pretty clear cut. You know, she missed it and she botched it. So, um, yeah. And she didn't obviously reveal that to me at the meeting. (laughs) Yeah. But, well, it is what it is. Really? Yeah, certainly not what you expected when you entered this process. No, uh, and I remember saying to my mum, oh, you know, could I not just have had a premature baby? Did I have to have this on top? Yeah. You, you know, did I have to have a fourth degree tear and then a rectovaginal fistula mm-hmm. and then an abscess and now a stoma? And because I had a stoma, I ended up losing my job as a police officer. So it was all just like one, it was just snowballing. It was like a wrecking ball going through my life, just destroying, yeah. destroying things. And yeah, like you say, you know, when you get pregnant, especially when I got you're pregnant so easily and my yeah. pregnancy had been so easy, I wasn't used to being incapacitated in any yeah. way and yeah. vulnerable and reliant on anybody. So that was quite difficult because it's just not, it's not who I am, but yeah. it's who I had to be. Yeah. I saw on your blog, you mentioned that in the U.S. we call them near misses, I think, which is seems like a a silly way to categorize it. But there are 30,000 women in the U.K. who suffer severe pregnancy complications after birth. Yeah, well, it's 30,000 women every year in the U.K. experience, well, a a traumatic birth, which can be anything really. But they do say, I think it's something like 20% of women will suffer some sort of extensive tearing. And that's a lot. That, that's a huge number. That is a that's lot. A huge uh, number. Yeah. I mean, m- my particular injuries are very, very slim chance. It's like 0.5% or something ridiculous. I was extremely unlucky. But but yeah, I, I think it's m- trauma as a result of childbirth and injuries as a result of childbirth are so much higher than people realise. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, one of my things is obviously I've got my blog and I'm I'm really open. I talk about my injuries. I don't really care. <laughs> Who knows what? You know, yeah. I'm not bothered. Yeah. But also the flip side of my blog is about the fact that you can overcome all of these things and have a positive and happy life, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But a, a few people have said to me, Oh, you know, I don't want to share your blog with my pregnant friends or with people I know that want to get pregnant because I think it'll frighten them. And I said, this is the problem that we have, that people patronise women and they think that we're not strong enough to take information. And I said, you know, I wish I had known what all the signs and symptoms were of a fourth degree tear. Because damn right, the day after having a baby, if I'd seen brown discharge on my underwear, I straight away would have said, excuse me, I am demanding to be re-examined. I think this might be a fourth degree tear. This is faeces. This is not right. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, it's up to women whether they access this information that's there, but don't not give it to them in the first place. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I agree. More information is probably better to know, especially since you're supposed to be your own advocate. Yeah. Right? Exactly. To, to some degree, it's it is on your shoulders. You know, no one cares about your health more than yourself. 
So yeah, exactly. You sort of need to need to know these things and you would never tell like a, a cancer patient not to look at everything that happens when you have cancer. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with your message. And going back to your blog, I, I don't know what word to use other than to say you're an incredible athlete. I mean, all the things you do, I'm pretty risk averse. And so I'm looking at the list of the skydiving and the triathlons. Oh, and the... Yeah, Well, I'm, I'm quite risk averse, you know. You're about to swim the English Channel. That doesn't sound risk averse. Oh, no. I mean, I'm literally frightened of everything. That skydive is awful. <laughs> awful. Oh, my gosh. It was awful. So wait, so tell us about all this. So you're, you're not pursuing um, police work anymore. And then, and then how do you kind of turn it around? I remember seeing on forums people describing their stomas and saying, every time I look at my stoma, it reminds me of a, the horrific reason why I have it. You know, most people have them as a result of bowel cancer or Crohn's and colitis or whatever. Yeah. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, I am not going to look at my stoma like that because for heaven's sake, that's going to, every day of my life, I'm going to be miserable yeah. because I'm going to yeah. have that. So I thought, right, I'm not, I'm actively not going to think like that. So I accepted my stoma pretty early on in that way. But it wasn't until about two or three years down the line that I read an article by an athlete who has a stoma. And she said she had hers as a result of Crohn's and colitis, which is a really nasty disease in the um, in the bowel, yeah. which people suffer lots of pain for many years. Yeah. Then they get a stoma and it makes them a lot better. And she said, you know, I'm so thankful for everything that the stoma has given me. It's like a light bulb. And, and I suddenly thought, well, hang on, it's all been about what the stoma has taken away from me. So it took away my job. It took away my bond with my baby. It took away my lovely maternity leave. It, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's taken away so much. And then I thought, well, no, hang on. Like, yeah, actually think about this. What does the stoma do? Why have you got the stoma? And I was like, right, well, I've got it because otherwise I would be incontinent. I'd be pulling yeah. my pants. And if that was the case, I'd be wearing adult nappies or diapers or I would, like, wouldn't be leaving the house. So I was like, yeah. oh, actually, look, look what it's actually enabled me to do. I can leave the house and go for walks and go swimming. And it was a, it was a revelation. So then I looked into it a bit more and looked into what stoma products used to be like in the like the 1950s and I thought wow look wow look what we've got now these are amazing like they're so discreet and waterproof and you could just do whatever you want with a stoma so I, then I just started to think right I am going to go out there and I am going to do absolutely every single thing that I've wanted to do because I've had one year definitely where I was completely incapacitated by the yeah. fistula and everything else yeah I, I just thought you know I'm not incapacitated anymore. So I just need to get out there and make the most of the life that I've got. And so I thought, right, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to lose weight because obviously I was heavily overweight. So I joined an indoor cycling class and I thought, right, well, I could do that because there'll be a toilet nearby and it's not scary. So if, if um, I get absolutely exhausted after 45 seconds, <laughs> I yeah, can yeah. just stop. I'm not going to be yeah. in the middle of the countryside. So I joined the cycling class and I, and I loved it. Um, I was really unfit though. I could only stand up like once on the pedals before I had to like collapse back down on, onto the seat. But it was actually run by a local triathlon club. And um, I'd always wanted to do a triathlon when I was younger because I'd always been pretty sporty. But I'd always said, you know, oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, I couldn't do that. You know, 
far too tiring. Um, but then I just started to think, well, no, that like, why shouldn't you? Like all these other people do triathlon. Why shouldn't you have a go? And you actually now have the ability to do this, you know, and just remember that year when you couldn't even walk anywhere. Now you can. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to sign up to do a triathlon. So I signed up <laughs> to do a triathlon, sorted out my swimming and got back into running and cycling. I mean, I wasn't by any stretch of the imagination spectacular, <laughs> but I was able to do all these three things. And um, I went to this first triathlon and the organisers were fantastic because they'd never had anyone with a stoma do it before. And of course, I had like 10 million zillion questions about oh, what happens if I have a bag leak and will I get disqualified if I have to go and change it and all these sort of things. And, you know, they were really kind and, and they were sort of saying, you know, this isn't the Olympics. You're not yeah, going to yeah. just, you know, <laughs> it will be fine. Um, so, yes, I went off and I did it. And I was just so, yeah, I, I just thought, right, well, there you go. That's one thing you thought you could never do. And you've done it. Can I describe life as like, you, it's all about getting little bricks. And that was like my first little brick. Yeah. So then I went to get my next little brick. And that was like the next um, stage triathlon that I did. And then, so that was after a year. And then after that, the tri club on mass decided to enter a half Ironman, which is a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike ride and a 13.1 mile run. And I just thought, well, why shouldn't I? Right, right, why shouldn't I give it a go? Right, I'm going to do it. So I signed up to do it. But part of doing this uh, half Ironman was I had to do open water swimming. Now I'm terrified of open water swimming. Absolutely terrified. You will no doubt remember the ridiculous film Jaws. Yes. Which we all saw. And, you know, I I watched that when I was eight and it terrified me out of the sea for 30 odd years I had to face up to that fear really to do that section of it and I did I mean I went off and I, I did my half iron man I'm making it sound really easy but it wasn't oh, <laughs> it's oh, really yeah. hard nothing about this sounds easy well, I assure you <laughs> and uh, that was actually when I decided to sort of come really public about my story and what had happened to me because I decided to raise money for the birth trauma association so you know I went in the local paper and all that sort of thing and on the BBC Radio Newcastle and I was out there for the first time with my whole story and I raised £5,000 for the Birth Trauma Association which was I was really pleased with that was like my next brick and then the, the next one that I wanted to get was I wanted to get back my love of the sea and my love of open water because when I when I was eight I was actually learning how to sail and I was like a little, I was like a little fish. I was always in the water. Yeah. And I thought, do you know what? I want to reclaim that. And it was all about getting back control over my life because so much that had happened to me had been out of my control, like losing yeah. my job and my injuries and all that sort of thing. Um, and I just thought, no, do you know what? I'm not having fear telling me what I can and can't do. So, so anything that I'm frightened of, I, I'm going to damn well beat it because I'm in charge of my life. So I joined a local group of sea swimmers and I mean it's a bit of a joke between us all because for a year and a half, literally a year and a half, I couldn't open my eyes when my face was in the water because if I couldn't see what was underneath me I'd have a panic, like a panic attack. Yeah. For a year and a half, I mean I went to the same beach 
with the same people all the time and they were all really really confident and eventually a friend said you know if you don't open your eyes in the water you can swim into a rock or you know it's actually of practical benefit yeah so I was like, oh, right, okay so I, I then tried like three seconds at a time five seconds at a time opening my eyes and and then I did it when it was the water was really clear and then I could see that there was nothing there yeah then just all of a sudden I don't know my brain must have just gone ping right okay this is fine this is fine you can do this and so I conquered that really I mean I do still have a lot of fears of the open water for example I would never well I say never I'm gonna have to (laughs) swim on my own in the open water and swimming in the dark it's really liberating and exhilarating and addictive actually overcoming things Uh, makes you feel really powerful And, and the more that I overcome the more powerful I feel and yeah, I just, I don't like to be beaten, really. A big part of it is is showing my son that what happened during his birth hasn't ruined my life by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's actually ended up empowering me. How did you end up skydiving? I mean, I only went skydiving because my two friends were going skydiving. And I had the little thought in my head was, I wonder what it's like. Everyone says it's amazing. And my husband said, but Jill, you cry on aeroplanes and you're terrified <laughs> of heights. I said, yeah, no, but everyone says that. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to get to like 80 and be like, oh, I really wish I'd done that skydive. So, I mean, I did it and I was completely hysterical before. I mean, hysterical. And when, when I landed, um, it was being videoed. And the guy who I was attached to said to the guy that was filming, was some exit that wasn't it <laughs> I was just screaming and I was awful I'm sure I gave myself PTSD all over again it was awful but I did it and so then again I was just like well yeah I've done it yeah you know so I was just like well god I never thought I could do anything like that so well I've just spent the whole winter in a bikini three times a week um in the North Sea so raising money again for the Birth Trauma Association so that was something I never thought I could do with stand the cold like that and get my stoma bag out in public for everybody to see. So they, there were two more things that I wondered if I was able to do. And I was. So that's good. That gave me more confidence. And then ultimately I've signed up to, like you said before, swim the English Channel solo. Um, and I'd be the first ostomate to do so. But yeah, I mean, I'm saying that really blasely, but actually inside I'm quite hysterical. <laughs> This is an amazing list of accomplishments. How long is the English Channel? How wide is it? It's 21 miles, but you end up swimming about 25 because of the currents. Yeah. Good Lord. And how long (laughs) is it supposed to take? Oh, about 14 hours. About. And you don't eat while you're in the water? Oh, no, you do. So there's, yeah, there's really strict rules on, on... what you do so you have to wear a regulation size swimming costume um basically nothing that covers like your legs and arms swimming hat goggles that's it and you once you've started swimming you're not allowed to touch the boat and no one is allowed to touch you so to get fed they get a pole and they they use either a cup or a bowl or something to give food to you and then you can get it out of there but you can't stop to feed for too long because the currents are so strong that you could be swept like 500 meters, which doesn't um, sound like much, but. Who's making the rules? What, what, what are the. It's like the a, um, English board. 
yeah English Channel Swimming Association because you actually have, you have to have a channel observer with you on the boat making sure that all the rules are are, um, are followed it's the pinnacle of open water swimming and more people have climbed Everest than have swum the channel I so bet happens, good lord so, yeah so when you swim the channel you there's a board down at Dover because Dover's where you start off in, in England yeah. there's a board with people's names on who've swum the channel wow and it's yeah, so you don't get to put your name on that board unless you follow exactly the same rules as everybody else. So, I mean, you could do it without all of that, but it wouldn't be official. That is totally amazing. And it makes complete sense to me that more people have climbed in the Himalayas, which um, superficially, I'm sure, doesn't seem as hard as it actually is. Although I think people can well understand how hard it seems to swim 25 miles in open water. <laughs> I, I am totally going to donate to that effort. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. I'm very excited. I'm very excited and a little upset that they won't let you wear a wetsuit. Oh, yeah. I know. No, well, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. And this is what attracts me to swim in the channel as well, as opposed to something like the Himalayas, because in the Himalayas, you can get better boots than somebody else yeah so you get a sherpa that's going to carry all your stuff yeah. you know like there are ways to make it easier yeah but when you swim the channel it's lit it's, it's you you can't do there's nothing that you can do that is going to make it easier for you compared to somebody else you know other than your training and things like yeah, that yeah. obviously but yeah. that is all down to you yeah so that's why I, and it, it so when you cross it that is that is your achievement obviously you've got your whole team behind you so they're part of that but it is you swimming that channel so. That is totally amazing. I hope they film part of it. Um, well, I am in a documentary. I am being filmed for a documentary, so no pressure. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> well, again, hopefully there'll be good editing if it's necessary. Yeah. I am super excited for you. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Your story is a, a prime example of taking the challenges of birth and being resilient with them and sort of turning it all around. So I, I'm so appreciative that you shared the story with us today. It is amazing, and I think... Another thing that's kind of really relatable in your story is that so many women get dismissed when they bring up pain or, or other elements of the birth that they found challenging. Almost everyone has a story where that that plays some small role where they say, oh, is this? And someone says, no, you're fine. Yeah. Which has to be changed. It's yeah. a crazy approach to healthcare. And as in the UK, the US, the near misses, which are considered severe pregnancy complications, is like on the order of 60,000 women every year. Yeah. And here, for sure, it's categorized hemorrhage or hysterectomy or some kind of clot. That doesn't count all the traumas. I'm sure if you counted everything that was traumatic, it would be a much larger number. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is something that I think we need to fix for our kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, mothers are the ones bringing the next generations in, into the world. So we need to be looked after. We're important. M yeah. The mother is the cornerstone of the family. Yeah, the family unit. And if we don't look after our mothers, then we're not looking after our family unit. And therefore, we're just not looking after society. So yeah. it should be discussed, it should be talked about, and we should be supportive and we should be believed. We're not asking for much. We're yeah. just asking for a basic right. Oh, completely. And, and my guess is it's even trickier in the UK because your maternal mortality rate is really good internationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what people focus on. I mean, since I've become more public the amount of women that I know that have contacted me yeah. and have said gosh I had x y and z and thank you so much for speaking out and you just think you know that so many women are just suffering 
suffering yeah. in silence and and the, the the winter bikini challenge that I did I had a sign on the beach saying I have a stoma as a result of traumatic childbirth you know, I'm trying to raise awareness of, of these issues and the amount of women that stopped me on the beach and they we we didn't necessarily have long conversations but for a lot of them they just said thank you so much and that's all they said and that's all they needed to say well they didn't even need to say that but yeah you know and that was countless women that I met and yeah. I just think you know and I just live in the northeast of England <laughs> but I think there is I think there's definitely getting a strong there are more more of us being more vocal about it um more prepared to kick up a fuss and you know breaking down the stigma of being so public about it and saying this is not a failure of our bodies here yeah <laughs> we're yep. not bad mothers because we haven't given birth properly it's not nothing to do with that and I, I think that's message is gradually getting through to women so they feel more able to to speak up yes yeah you know the alternative name of this podcast was going to be it's only fucking reproduction yeah right yeah like, yeah <laughs> um to expect to do it seamlessly is just yes yeah. doesn't even make sense right it's yeah 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 <laughs> Exactly. Um, so I, I totally appreciate your story. I will look forward to posting all the snippets I can from your site on in the show notes so people can follow you. Fab. Fabulous. Thank you. And, and I'm assuming we can donate to the effort to swim the channel, right? Sponsor you, you or something? Yeah. So it's on my website, which is www.stomachameleon.com. And it's on the very first page. There's a, there's a little bit of blurb and a link there. To, to sponsor me it's actually on a GoFundMe, but you're not giving me money to do the swim all the money is going to charity and I've had to do it that way because I'm fundraising for three separate charities so that's the only way I could do it so the first is the Birth Trauma Association the second is Colostomy UK and then the third one is the Jacobs Well Appeal which is actually really important to me because they send out trauma products and supplies to countries like the Philippines where they don't have anything like that and, you know, kids are using things like plastic bags and tin cans and, and things like that. for students. Good Lord. Yeah, that, oh. that sounds amazing. That sounds ama yeah. like amazing work. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. So, you know, I just want them to have the products to enable them to live the life that I do. Yeah. Um, or just even to go out and go for a walk. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. that's what I'm fundraising for. And that's where you can find the, find the details. Thank you again so much for coming on to share your story. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Very, very honoured to have been asked on. Thank you very much. You can find more about Jill and all the things she's conquered at stomachameleon.com and follow her on her next adventure, The Quest Across the English Channel. Thanks so much to Jill for sharing her story, for her efforts to raise awareness and money for women who've experienced birth trauma, and for increasing our collective sense of the life that can be lived with a stoma and what overcoming challenging circumstances can look like. Thanks also to Dr. Mithatyahu for her expertise and for alerting people to the occurrence of fistula, which she said is really uncommon in well-resourced countries. She said that if a woman experiences prolonged labor in the U.S., for example, and pushes for three or four hours, she can get a C-section. But in under-resourced countries, prolonged labor can mean pushing for days, which damages the vaginal tissues, often means that the baby doesn't make it, and can lead to life-changing physical and social consequences for the mother. You can find her organization, Beyond Fistula, at beyondfistula.org. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, feel free to like and subscribe. We'll be back soon with another story about how women handle the challenges they face in their efforts to grow their family.